Okay. Matt Billman, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. You are the CEO and you would say the biggest tech head of Netlify, aren't you? That's a pretty good description, probably. <laughs> I should put that in my official title. <laughs> I think normally what I have is uh, the chief instigator at Netlify. Very much so. And when I met you, we just instantly hit it off speaking about frameworks, what's happening in the industry, maybe some hot topics not to discuss on air. <laughs> I'm always happy to discuss anything. <laughs> Honored to have you here because for people who know anything about the Jamstack know that Netlify and you specifically are the one who really made this term something that developers were aware of and made it an architecture that had a name beyond just saying, oh, I'm just using a static size generator. So this is the full stack Jamstack podcast. We owe you a huge debt for it even existing and for this ecosystem existing. So we're just like so happy to have you here and we'll have a lot of really cool topics to talk about yeah and i think it's really great to jump straight into a question that i know some of our listeners are dying to ask what is happening to the jamstack and is netlify dropping the jamstack no no we, we're big proponents of the jamstack and i think the jamstack more than ever is growing up and you will even see that from the people on netlify building with a Jamstack approach, right? Like where by now that's very real, very deep mission critical enterprise use cases. If you log into Twilio today, that whole SaaS application is built with a clear Jamstack approach and, and it's running on Netlify. Go to unilever.com that's running on, on Netlify with a clear Jamstack approach, DocuSign, Asana, Flexport, so many others, right? Like we've, we've really seen this become a major architecture, both from the developer bottom-up groundswell that Netlify started like writing on and, and and encouraging, but also like for really large, mature enterprise companies. And I think what we'll see is also the, the Jamstack architecture evolving, right? Like obviously it's been a long time since we coined the term and the platform landscape, the technological landscape, the framework landscape, everything has, has evolved since that term got coined, and of course, that also means that the, that the Jamstack architecture and how people think about it, it needs to evolve as well. The core thing we tried to capture when we coined the phrase Jamstack and when I put up sort of the first little manifesto that we started sharing with people in the industry and getting buy-in around was the idea that we would move from a world where every website, web application, web store was a monolithic thing that bundled together like templates, web UI, plugins, business logic, data access into one thing and to a world where you would start really decoupling the web UI and also having that backend layer splitting from that one monolithic thing into all these different APIs and services that you can compose together and where typically some of those are your own and some of them runs on third-party services like Off-Zero, Contentful and so on, right? That, that was the core like architectural shift that we were trying to to capture when when we started talking about Jamstack. And obviously like in, in the time when we coined the term like back in 2015, the way people would build when they decoupled the web UI layer from the backend was typically by building a, a completely static web UI, right? And it gave it a lot of advantages around like if you did that, you get a very predictable sort of 
release management process, rollback process. You can distribute that web UI on a, on a global CDN. You can get like amazing performance benefits, reliability benefits, security benefits, and so on, right? People would then either talk to the API and service layer during the build stage or directly from the client as a single page application, right? Like in Netlify, we always had like a lot of different combinations of those use cases. Like Netlify itself was sort of based around the idea that, okay, if this decoupling is going to happen and this architectural paradigm is going to happen, we have a real opportunity to build an end-to-end cloud platform for the web UI layer of this stack, including both like the release management, the operations, the actual hosting, everything, everything that goes into building, deploying and operating that web UI layer. And we can make developers much more efficient there and we can make the end results much, much faster. Our sort of product philosophy there was always looking at all the, the real world things that people at scale were doing when they were building projects with this architecture and early projects with this architecture were things like the original Obama campaign getting built with Jekyll and so on, right? Like it was a bunch of Google projects. It was uh, the stuff that Instrument in Portland were, were building for a lot of different enterprises with middlemen and so on, right? We sort of really took the best practices from around that and just baked it into the platform so you would get them like out of the box with, with a click. And then as we started seeing like all these new primitives gets introduced, as we saw AWS Lambda starting to be a thing, right? Like we spend a lot of time looking at like, how is this actually getting used within this architecture? And we came up with like the concept of baking in serverless functions to this kind of cloud platform for web and saying like, hey, you can just have a folder with serverless functions that'll roll out together with your static files and everything will be deployed together. Everything will take the same release management procedure and so on. Later on, we started pioneering what we at the time called edge handlers, which has now turned into edge functions, right? Like starting to see, okay, we're also going to start having this idea of like a runtime layer at the edge, sitting behind the browser that will change a lot of what people can do in terms of personalization and on the fly rewriting of their script and so on. And as the industry has evolved, we've seen that layer also become like a streaming rendering layer talking to the different APIs and services, right? Like, so we've baked that into the platform as well. And the interesting thing that happened was that as, as we put Netlify into the world and we sort of decided, like, sort of suggested, this is what a cloud platform for web should look like. Then that started becoming like an accepted concept that a lot of other companies started also also copying, right? Like Gatsby in some way built one just for Gatsby. Russell started building one around Next, the Cloudflare Pages, AWS Amplify Console, Azure Static Web Apps, right? And now we are really in a world where it's like become an accepted standard that this, this is what a cloud platform for web should look like. And now the interesting thing is that there's this feedback loop happening where we're seeing this whole new generation of frameworks being built around this concept of, of a cloud platform for web frameworks like SwellKit or SolidJS or Remix or Quick or Marco and so on, right? And they will, of course, play into the loop of like, what is the next evolutionary path for this kind of decoupled architecture going to look like? And some of them will be taking approaches that's very different from what I would describe as a Jamstack approach, right? Like some, some are looking very much to build Again, monolithic full stack applications with serverless functions and edge functions and direct, again, grouping together templates, data access, plugins, all of that in one package. But I think at scale, when we look at the kind of customers that, that we're addressing at the upper end of the market, the enterprise customers, most of these frameworks still will be used in fundamentally a Jamstack approach where you really build a self-standing web UI 
that talk to the different APIs and services that actually make up your, your backend. And that's pretty separated from the web UI layer. What I think we are starting to see shifting is that when we started out, the only points you, you would talk to those two, to your different APIs and services were either during the build step as you pre-built as much as a front end as, as you could with sort of a more static approach or directly from the client. If you build a single page application and you would talk to the different APIs and services directly from the browser. And now we're seeing this new middle layer come out where you can also build with, with an approach that very similar architecturally to a single page application, but where most of the communication to the APIs and services you rely on happens from a streaming rendering layer at the edge right behind the browser. And I see that as when used with a Jamstack architectural approach of decoupling the web UI from the backend, then I see it just as an evolution of the architecture. Then, as I said, I think there are other takes of trying to use it more as going back to a monolithic approach and grouping everything together that you can totally also build and, and deploy on Netlify, but that wouldn't really, that to me is, is not in line with the idea of decoupling that's inherent to the Jamstack approach. Yeah, that's why I've always really found Redwood to be so interesting and why it kind of inspired the idea of this podcast in the first place. And if viewers want to kind of like nerd out on FS Jam, you can go listen to our very, very first episode, episode zero. And so many of the things that you just said are, are things that we, we were trying to give our idea of like, how do we think of the Jamstack? How do we explain the Jamstack to people? And then how do we talk about why we want it to reach more in like a full stack way? And the decoupling thing was a, a really big part of it because something doesn't have to be monolithic to be full stack. And that's what I found really interesting about Redwood is that it gave you the front end and the back end in a single application, but they actually were decoupled. Like your database is in a whole separate area and your front end is in a whole separate area. So I'll be curious, like, have you ever like actually used Redwood? And like, what is your take on Redwood? I haven't had a production use case for it, right? Like, so I've only only had the chance to play around it for, for prototyping and, and ideating and so on, right? Like, and, and it was one of the things I always liked in the Redwood vision that there was this clear idea of like, okay, Let's take something that for a startup segment, it's like really easy to spin up a whole new application from scratch, but we guide people from the framework to still keep this idea of decoupling. So your APIs are actually separate from your, from the web UI layer, because I think over time, if you grow a company at scale and, and your startup really becomes successful, you want to be able to, to over time instrument teams to work on those different APIs pretty independently and to have those APIs consumed, not just by, by web UI, but maybe also from a mobile application or for different variations of the UI or for your internal tools or so on, right? Like, and I've always really liked that Redwood bakes that decoupling into the framework rather than trying to go back to saying like, okay, if it's full stack, let's build a monolithic app where everything lives together. Awesome. Yeah. And then we love to hear your thoughts on what do you think the next five years of the Jamstack are going to look like? I mean, you've already talked a lot about edge stuff. So I think that we know that that's going to be a big part of the future. So if you want to talk any more about that, if there's anything else that you think is also going to be important. I think the, the edge layer is, of course, a really interesting aspect. And I think it's still very early to, to know exactly how the real world use case of it will be built out, right? Like I think the first sort of production framework that I'm using the idea of like a streaming edge rendering layer, talking to different APIs is really hydrogen from Shopify, right? Like in it's very early days for that. So it'll be interesting to follow. First of all, I, I think we'll keep seeing very traditional Jamstack applications pre-building as much as they can for a lot of different types of projects where just 
you can't underestimate like the reliable release process you get when you have a build that gives you a deploy preview and you know that like when you roll that into master that's exactly what go live and where you know that if you roll back that's exactly what you will roll back to and so on that segment will just keep growing and we'll be better at doing the builds faster and so on then i think we'll also still have a lot of the traditional single page applications for all that people like to dunk on them that there are a lot of use cases for especially locked in application experiences where if you build them right, they, they are typically like a very good architecture. I think Netlify's own admin UI, like when you log into app.netlify.com is just a really great example of like how a single page application use case can be a really great user experience and feel performant, responsive, everything. But then I think we'll start seeing these use cases, as I said, where when many ways the mentality is very similar to a single page application, but you shift a lot of the rendering logic and data fetching logic from happening in the browser into happening in the edge runtime layer. And that's a really interesting architecture. I think, again, there's some people that, that think that that architecture will lead us to building full stack application on top of distributed, globally distributed databases, right? Like, because always the dilemma you have is that if you run the code close to the user, unless you can get the data close to the user, the end result will probably be slower because normally if you have a more complex page, you need several round trips to your data source, right? Like if you make the latency from the code to the data source higher, then each round trip gets slower and the end results gets like, you just deliver a much slower load time, right? So you need to somehow bring the, the data closer to that streaming runtime layer as well. And I think the use case of doing that through having all your data living in, in a globally distributed database will be for relatively small application and relatively niche applications, right? Like I know that if I took Netlify's core production database and wanted to put that in even just like eight regions all over the world that would be prohibitively expensive we have a lot of data we'll most likely see that rendering layer talk to different apis and services and then we'll figure out patterns to be able to cache those api calls and those services called at the same edge layer as as the edge rendering runs to that has the advantage that it works equally well whether that edge rendering is happening in, in the user's browser or, or whether they are actually happening at that edge compute layer, right? They'll still just talk to APIs and services, but we'll find better ways to, to accelerating them. And I think one of the patterns that will become common for that is this idea that we are now pushing through what we call Netlify Graph. That's really the idea of saying like, hey, can we put all the different APIs and your services you're talking to behind one specific GraphQL endpoint that serves sort of as, a, as an aggregator for all of them. TakeShape is working on that as well. StepSend is working on that as well. I actually worked at StepSend for a year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome, right? And then GraphCDN, I'm blanking right now on their new name. They, they rebranded it. Yeah, Stella, something like that. Yeah, still it, yeah, to tackle the same problem, right? And I think that's because it starts becoming a, an, an approach that really makes sense, right? Like if you can through talk through one GraphQL layer, then you can also start like having enough knowledge in that GraphQL layer of your query patterns and your mutations and so on to start being able to cache the relevant API calls close to the edge. And then you start actually being able to take advantage of this streaming edge layer, right? Like, so my guess is that that will become a pretty common part of, of the Jamstack architecture over time and something that, that more people will, will use. That makes me happy to hear you say that because I tried pitching steps then to Jamstack people for like a year and <laughs> didn't go very well. <laughs>
<laughs> I think it's also why I think that, that some of these solutions will be very tightly integrated or built into the kind of cloud platform that we've been pioneering at Netlify. I love Netlify Graph. I think it's such a super cool idea to just like have that baked into the thing instead of making it a whole separate thing. You got to bring it into your thing. It's like, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And I think especially once as a developer, you start connecting to the first couple of data sources, right? At, at that step, the barrier to entry, if if you have to now, instead of bringing in one new API, essentially bring in a new tool plus a new API, it gets very high, right? But if it's sort of already built into the platform you use to build the web UI with, it becomes a very logical step to say, let us let me just activate this API and, and start querying it. We've just spoken about what the Jamstack looks like now, where it's been and where it's going. And a big component of where it is going is, in my eyes, the Jamstack Innovation Fund. Can you tell us a little bit more about that, Matt? Netlify in general, we've, we've always seen that like the inherent way that the Jamstack works is that any specific project a larger company builds or any solution you're building is never built with one thing, right? Like we're kind of replacing monoliths with a set of different services and uh, APIs and frameworks and solutions, right? So we've always seen it as incredibly important for us to invest, not just in, in Netlify's own platform, but in the whole ecosystem around us, right? Like, and in focusing on like, how can we make that whole ecosystem evolve and grow so we together can tackle more and more complex problems, right? We've done that in many different ways through our existence. We've sponsored a lot of open source projects. Uh, today, we have a whole open source team at Netlify that works with all the different frameworks and communities in that space to, to make them better and to make the ecosystem more mature. And then when we did our last round in back at the end of last year, we also earmarked some of the money from that round to start actually doing investments into early stage companies in the Jamstack field that we thought were working on, on interesting solutions in the space, both to be able to give them some more funds, but I think that's typically the smallest part, like the majority of their rounds tends to come from professional VCs and so on, right? And Netlify is not a professional VC, but we think that we can add to those founders and to those companies a ton of insight into how the process of building this kind of developer first company how you actually like sell into companies through developers we can help them get exposure to our whole user base of developers building with netlify we we're close to three million developers on the platform now so it's like a large segment of the front-end community and we think we can also create connections between these different uh, new startups in the in the jamstack ecosystem and really like help everybody feel more like they're part of a community making the the web better to build for this is actually really important as this episode is going out after the announcement everfund is one of the companies in the fund yeah I do know the other companies in the fund, and I do have a few questions about the trends that we're seeing. And the trends that we're seeing from the other companies, a few of them, is a lot of them are focused on back-end services, abstraction of that data layer. How important do you think that is? And how much of that area do you think we have worked out as a JavaScript community? I think that's one of the areas where there's a lot of excitement now. I think if we just look historically at the Jamstack as it grew up, when we started Netlify, the ecosystem around us was like mainly unfunded open source projects, like 
Jekyll, Grunt, Gulp, Hugo, Ember, and, and the like. The main commercial player in the space was pretty much contentful, right? Like, and, and then, then us, and we started getting to a point where the first framework got funded and we started having like Gatsby, Contentful, Netlify being like an enterprise ready stack and so on, right? Then we started seeing like, just an explosion around that in, in the headless content API space, right? Like all the different headless infrastructures for content, Sanity, Agility, Strapi, Cosmic, Storyblog, like that's just a massive amount of choice in that area now. And it's a very dynamic field, right? And we started seeing first Next getting funded as the next framework. And now we have like Astro and Kid and Remix and Quick and so on. So that whole open source landscape started being really vibrant. Over the last two and a half years, I think we started seeing what happened to content initially starting to happen to e-commerce and we saw all of these new players in the headless commerce space like commercially as well commerce tools medusa like just there's there's a ton of players there i'm i i should be better at naming all of them but but it's such a rich landscape now with so much choice and so much innovation and i think right now we're we're around the same cycle when it comes to the application space of all these different backend API pieces that fits into that, that's typically around how do you actually like build the backend APIs and services on top of the custom data sources, right? Like companies like Convex, that's really like reimagining how global state can look like and how subscriptions in real time and all of that can look like and be handled in a very seamless manner from from JavaScript companies like Chisel Strike that's basically taking like your TypeScript code and then deriving your infrastructure for that, deploying that for you, keeping all of that for you. So you can basically just write your API code, deploy it, like push it and, and the rest happens from there. I think for the fairness of, of all the companies that are in this, where we're talking about some of them, we should list them all off right now so people know what they are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Give them all the shout outs. Just from top to bottom, the way we've got them written down here, there's Clutch.io, Tigris Data, Convex, Nux.js, Dino, Everfund, Clerk, Chisel Strike, Take Shape, and Snaplet. And so when I saw this list, I was already aware of seven of these and, and knew them or were familiar with them because they were either a framework I'd already used or it was a company whose product I'd already used or someone who's been on this podcast already, just Snaplet. So I think it's an awesome list. It's a, a really great set and it's like very diverse, even though it has a lot of back end stuff, has some front end stuff, it's got Nux on there, and it's got some e commerce y kind of stuff, some things based around payments, some things based around GraphQL with take shapes and things based around databases. And I think it's a really cool set of overall projects and companies. I'm very excited to work with all of these founders, right? Like, and, and this is, of course, this is not some like exclusive list of us trying to pick the, the, our favorites in the like, these are all founders that we feel like are independently building things that are going to be massively valuable to the, to the ecosystem. Yeah, could you talk just a little bit about what was the process of how they were selected? Like, what was the kind of criteria? And like, if, if someone was looking at this and wants to get on maybe the next round or thinking like, hey, this this seems cool, like, what should they know? 
Some of it is timing, right? Like we typically, again, since Netlify is not a VC, we don't go in and price a whole new round or start a whole new fundraising process, right? Like, so we typically talk to companies that one were ready to fundraise from just a structural perspective, right? Like that actually have a company set up and are ready to go raise money in one form or the other that are in the process where, where they're close to closing their first round or, or their second round and where there's room for Netlify to participate in in that round without coming in and pricing it as such. So that's sort of some of the practicalities, right? And then, of course, we, we're looking for companies that are building tools that we feel really fit in with the Jamstack architectural approach, right? Like with this idea of a composable backend layer and a decoupled web UI layer and all of the abilities that that gives us to to build like vertically across all those different backend use cases and horizontally on the front end layer across things like um, Dino that's like the the first sort of truly open runtime for for that layer or Clutch that's really one of the companies in the space working on like, okay, if, if that web UI layer is really self-standing and we're starting to adopt these component systems, we should be able to build tools for, for designers and developers to collaborate with much less friction than that. All companies like Nox that are investing in the in the framework space and the tooling space and the admin space of like, what's the tools for, for developers to build those web UIs, right? So any companies that fit into into that whole landscape, we are very, very interested to talk with. Yeah, and I think it's really important to know that this is only the first round. There is going to be more rounds. It really is about when we look at that previous monolithic structure, one company would build everything and every single component will be necessarily subpar. But then when we look at this decoupled approach, we allow each company to excel in that area. So when they're all connected together, a much better experience is given to them and customers and developers. But it also means that we have to start becoming much better at collaborating as companies, right? Like, because often when in, in any of the verticals we go into, Netlify's customers, right? Like our customer base is really building anything web facing from marketing sites to full application use cases to many different types of e-commerce from like luxury brand e-commerce with a small set of SKUs that needs a very high production value or massive e-commerce stores or companies like Spring that's like publishing 10 million custom storefronts through Netlify's API and so on, right? Like in each of the different use cases, we are typically replacing like some monolithic solution, right? Like whether that's like a traditional monolithic CMS or a monolithic experience management system or some monolithic e-commerce platform or some monolithic application platform. And that also means that as we go into enterprises that's used to having one vendor, they buy their whole monolithic solution for as companies, we really have to be good at also like collaborating in those sales processes and collaborating in like, how do we make it easy for developers to use the whole package together versus just the individual pieces? Because for each of us, that's often the, the friction between us and developer adoption, right? Like how do developers get the whole thing done and not just our piece of it? Could you talk a little bit actually about there's this term composability that's going around a lot. And I think you've started using that as like composable commerce. Could you talk a bit about that and how that fits into all this decoupled web stuff? I mean, I think the, the, the composable terms comes, comes from two sides, right? Like on one hand, it's a very frequently used term in, in programming where, where it's all often been an, an ideal for 
especially functional programming, right? Like how can we make our code composable? So if we write a bit of code that does something in one context, we can make it, we can reuse it in, in all the different contexts where we want it. But then it's also a term that's coming from the, from the enterprise buyer segment where a lot of companies have bought these monolithic solutions for a vendor. And then pieces of that solution just over time gets more and more out of date, right? But they're stuck in a world where it's like either or. Either they have to replace their whole solution and move to something new with all the trade-offs and all that massive migration cost that that involves, or they have to just accept pieces of their solution being way subpar for what they could get. And I think that's the promise of the composable architecture for all these companies, right? Like that if you if you have clear contracts between the different pieces, then upgrading parts of them or changing parts of them or adding new parts is never an either or situation, right? It's like not, I have to throw everything away and upgrade to a new system just to fix this one piece of it. It's okay, I just swap out this piece for the new thing, right? And I think that's a very powerful value proposition in general for this architectural approach that we are all part of. Each of us can really go and innovate in our different spaces. And if we collaborate well, we'll all work incredibly well together. We'll be able to give people solutions that feel equally coherent as one monolithic solution, but they can evolve individual parts of that solution independently. I think one of the biggest things about the decoupled web is the introduction to new people, to people that have never coded a website before. Before, when we looked at the LAM stack, they would have to build their WordPress website, host a MySQL database, run a whole service, deploy a whole service. They would need to install an operating system to host a website. Open cPanel, <laughs> upload the documents through FTP. Do you remember them days, FTP? Oh yeah, I remember very well. Exactly. And to get to the point where we are now. The first company I, I worked for in the web space uh, had uh, an actual room in their basement with their servers. Uh, and uh, if, if something broke there, we had to go fix it, right? Like like Gilfoil. And we would FTP into those servers with uh, Dreamweaver to edit templates uh, directly on the server, right? Like it was a, a very different world. Exactly. And today, the most simplest form to upload a website to the internet is by drag and dropping the HTML onto Netlify. So we've already came so far. But then when we're building blogs in that, we can use something like Markdown traditionally. But that's when we started going into these third party services. And I really find that this is the next steps of the Jamstack. The, as you said earlier, it growing up is how does it communicate with them APIs and how does it do it well enough that it's not a massive jigsaw puzzle to glue together? Yeah, I think that's where we where we see sort of the next frontier of complexity, right? Like where we often have the sense that, that every web project now, you first have to like glue together three, four, five different APIs and services, manage the different off-token secrets for each of them, understand each of them's SDK and remember like what conventions they use in their API versus the other ones and so on. That's for sure one of the areas where, where I think like, I mean, obviously I mentioned Netlify Graph is one of our takes and how can we reduce reduce the complexity there and, and, and reduce the friction for developers and make it very intuitive to build with. And I think in general, we'll see a lot of takes in the modern game stack space and like, how do we make that process of working across services much simpler? And also because like, while I think 
we've just made massive strides in how easy it is to get something online today and, and push something out on, on the flip side of it, right? Like the demands to what you have to build as a developer today are also much, much higher, right? Like back when my company I worked for had, had servers in the basement, there was no such thing as responsive web design. And it was like the UIs we were expected to build were, were very non-interactive and very straightforward in that way, right? Like browser technologies were pretty horrible, so it's still hard to build them, right? But today, the level of user experiences people are expecting to get in the browser is a completely different level, right? Like right now, as we're recording this podcast, we're doing it in an app running completely in the browser with integrated video stream and real-time like audio processing and chat and all of that. Zencaster, for anyone who's curious what he's talking about. I'm talking about Zencaster, right? Like, but it's just an example of like, it's easy to take for granted, but it's, it's a pretty recent thing in some ways that these kind of applications would be the kind of things we were expected to build as front-end developers in the browser, right? Like, and today that's what we have to build unless we can help really removing the friction and complexity for all the other layers of the stack. It'll just be an unsurmountable challenge to actually build the kind of user experiences that people want today. And with that, it's still a lot of learning and advocacy to still be done. I see this quite often right now in the world of Shopify. Shopify has just released Hydrogen. That's like the next generation of the Jamstack frameworks. So many Shopify developers that I know of don't even know what even Netlify is as a whole. That's going to be a giant leap for them to move over to developing in JavaScript, React, and all these other technologies that are going to go with it. One thing that I really did want to speak about is your thoughts of the hyper activity we're seeing around JavaScript. We saw a lot of hyper activity around frameworks and now we're seeing it a lot around computing at the edge do you think it will all settle down mature or do you think we will jump onto something else this is the interesting part around like especially the front-end framework part right like that it kind of inherently have to keep evolving because what we're building with the front-end frameworks are user experiences today the most of us probably have the vast majority of interactions with all the different companies that, that we buy stuff from and that we subscribe to and run through the web so their main way of differentiating who they are to us is through their online presences and their and their web UIs, right? And that means that there's just a certain point where to differentiate someone will invent something original, right? Like something that everybody are not doing right now that feels different. And that'll set a company apart from a while. And then the market will start trying to to figure out, hey, how did they do that? How do we do that as well? Right? Like and a lot of other people start cloning it. And at some point someone will turn that kind of experience, like the best way to build that in into a framework. And then everybody will start adopting that framework because it's like the best way to build this this user experience that's now starting to be like what you expect, what modern looks like, what reason feels like, right? And then you'll get to a certain point of saturation where now that's just like the standard. And if you do that, you're no longer standing out. You're just one of many. Then the cycle sort of has to reset, right? Like someone has to come up with something different. And on top of that, the devices that we're targeting in UIs also keep changing, right? Like the devices that we're using now, the screen sizes, the kind of browsers, everything has evolved tremendously over the last 10 years, right? And there's no reason to believe that that will stop as we start having AI and VR devices and, and all of that, right? So I think there's just a natural level of constant, I wouldn't even just call it constant churn, I would call it constant innovation in that 
layer that needs to be able to happen to keep us all from being able to build more exciting things in in the browser. And I think it's actually like as frustrating as it can it can sometimes be that that it's constantly changing and we have to keep up with it. It's also the fun part and the interesting part that that we actually like really continuously building more and more advanced and exciting things through browsers. I think there's always so many lessons that can be taken from people that take different paths, like Laravel is pretty popular. Ruby is still pretty popular. What we've seen with Redwood is they took all the best parts of Ruby and put it in JavaScript and people love it. So there's still so much innovation to be made. And that really brings me on to my next question is, how do you think the open source environment is going to change? And will we see it predominantly took over by closed source products pushing open source forward instead of individual contributors? It's a hard question. I mean, I think that that's for sure been been a trend in, in recent years and probably also an, an even bigger trend while while interest rates were near zero and money were, were cheap to raise and, and get by, right? Like I think it's one of the big unsolved problems of open source is like sustainable open source monetization. I spend a lot of time thinking about it, but I can't say that by now we have a great solution. Like at Netlify's end, we, we simply set about a significant amount of capital to go invest in open source outside of Netlify without claiming to be owners of any of those projects, right? Like, and trying to just be good citizens, but it's for sure often a, a risk that as you build an open source framework, you look for a way to actually make it sustainable to work on it and, and have a whole group of people working on it. And I think there's a lot of value to go raise money around an open source project and be able to really invest in it, but it does also inherently change the the nature of the project, right? Like typically because to monetize that open source project, the company that's now forming around it has to build something else than the open source project that they can sell. And they do eventually have to make money by making the open source project a go-to-market tool for the company they're building rather than than an objective in itself. It's probably still a better model than a model where something like OpenSSL just sits around forever and all of us rely on it, but no one funds it in any way, right? But it also still doesn't feel like we found the best long-term sustainable model to make the open source model fundamentally work as a true community model, right? I think it's really important, this conversation. And when you say we don't know all the answers, we're seeing people take different paths. I bring up Zach Leverman. He was recently on Changelog, I believe it was, speaking about he was working at Netlify as an engineer. And then the opportunity came up to just work on Eleventy full time. And he took it as the best thing ever. But then we see folks like Tanner Lindsay, who are building this massive base of supporters to push that software forward. And then we see the other camp that they're working inside the company of Vercel. Is that owned by the framework? Is that just being supported? I can't say for sure. And it's not worth speaking about for sure. But there's so much to do there. And I think there's still so much surface area that we need to figure out as a community on how do we support these projects that are necessarily fundamental cornerstones of all of our apps. The best we've been able to do so far is just hiring a full-time team that that works full-time on open source, right? Like Zach Lillerman is one of them, Ryan Kanyato joined, Matt Keen is on that team working a lot with different communities from Next to Gatsby and so on. Yeah, Brittany Postma for the Svelte community. Yeah, so we've really, we, we really tried to just say, re- regardless of whether these 
open source projects are commercial entities or pure open source community entities and so on. Let's step on our end so we can be good citizens and, uh, and provide value to all of those communities. Do you want to speak about Dino a bit? I mean, I can speak a little bit about Dino because like, of course, we, we, we took a lot, long time to really decide on our path for like the edge compute layer. We, we initially built a prototype web based on Wasm, but felt like for the front end community, the tool chains around that were still the developer experience we could offer there was not like in line with, with what we've been doing so far. Then we prototyped our own isolate based JavaScript runtime, we took it to beta under the name of edge handlers and had, had customers build with it and, and push us hard to, to take it to production. But we still felt that as I looked at this whole evolution of the landscape, like this edge compute layer is now starting to be something that, that I think a lot of frameworks are building around and are expecting to be like one of the building blocks of the modern web. And I couldn't just imagine like a version of like, to me, the beautiful thing of the web has always been like the open nature of it, right? Like the fact that we are building around standards that doesn't have a specific owner and that we can take from one company to the other and that we all sort of as an industry has has, has agreed upon and, and worked together on, right? And I felt like the idea of, of, of Netlify just having its own proprietary runtime, that if you build on that runtime, you could only run it on Netlify didn't feel like philosophically like aligned with the way we've been building for the open web in general. So I spent a lot of time looking into like, what would the best option be to lean in on something that's fundamentally open and non-proprietary? That's where I think Dino came to the right level at, of maturity at the right time for us to really say, okay, let's lean in. They've actually built a true open source runtime. You can go look at the source code yourself. You can download Dino CLI and run exactly the same runtime on your local machine as, as you'll have in, in Netlify's Edge functions. You can open a pull request to the runtime if you have some great ideas of how it could evolve, right? And that's why we really leaned into to Dino and, and rebuild our, our Edge function there around Dino as the first major runtime we support there. Why did you pick Dino instead of Cloudflare workers? Cloudflare workers is, is a fully proprietary runtime, right? Like that didn't stop Vercel though. Vercel is building on Cloudflare workers. So you would only build on something open source. You would never integrate with anything proprietary. We have a lot of proprietary platform pieces, but I don't want the runtime itself to be proprietary, right? If AWS Lambda back in the day had been a proprietary compute runtime with its own JavaScript implementation, I'm sure we wouldn't have launched serverless functions on top of AWS Lambda, right? Like AWS Lambda, of course, like the, the whole fire, like the whole environment they run it in, that's a very proprietary cloud environment, but it just runs node. Anything you run in a node-based Lambda function, you can take and you could put it on a digital ocean instance and run the same. We've always felt that that was like a pretty core piece of, of our runtime there. That was why we didn't go with Cloudflare workers. You can't today take a Cloudflare worker and just run it somewhere else, right? Like I know they've announced their intention in maybe not coincidentally in the wake of our announcement of, of building edge functions on top of Dino, they've announced their intentions to, to open source the runtime behind Cloudflare workers, which is great. Like I'm happy that, that we can incentivize them to do that. But as of today, you can't, there is no source code anyway that you can actually go access. Yeah, I've never actually thought about that before, and I would have assumed it was open source. And I agree with you, if they're going to want to really push the web forward, like you got to open source that. Yeah, yeah. And they, they've announced now their intention to, to open source it. But as of today, the Cloudflare Worker runtime is a completely proprietary runtime. Thank you. That's super, super interesting. You want to talk about JamstackConf? 
Yeah, absolutely. So really, really excited to to be able to put on an in-person Jamstack conf again after so long. Like we've had some very fun digital events over the last couple of years, right? Like, but nothing is the same as actually like getting the whole community together in person. The last in-person event we had was at the end of 2019 uh, in San Francisco. And it was just like so energizing to see, especially because this whole landscape is built of all these composable tools and all these frameworks and all these different companies that are getting used in different different ways to build a lot of different things, but are always used in combinations together. It was such a good feeling to actually be able to have all the core peoples of that ecosystem in, in a venue at the same time and seeing all their all the interactions and all the discussions and all the connections being built at those events. So I'm very excited to put on the next uh, real world Jamstack event in November. It'll be November 7th and 8th, if I'm remembering my dates. Yeah, that sounds right. Both Chris and I plan on being there. So for any listeners who want to come hang out or any other guests who want to record some cool in-person podcasts like we did at Remix Conf, we'll probably be doing some of that at Jamstack Conf. I think the Jamstack Conf is a great place to just get people who would not necessarily speak to each other on the internet in a room because you never know what might come out of it. New partnerships, even new technology. In-person shitposting. Maybe so. And hot-taking, for sure. One of the things I can say is you can currently put in your email address on the website, jamstackconf.com, and you'll get a 20% discount on the ticket. And secondly is the Jamstack, I forgot what it's called up, the Jamstack questionnaire. That's not the real one. The, the Jamstack survey. The Jamstack survey. The Jamstack survey. Yes. Yeah, you should absolutely go fill that one out. We want as many from the whole community to participate. It's always super interesting to be able to see how, how the whole ecosystem evolves. Do you find that the survey, when it's finished, the results are compiled and released to the internet, do you find that you find yourself thinking over the year, this is going to be a big deal, and then the survey comes out and you're like, I was right or I was wrong. <laughs> there will always be tidbits where you're like, okay, yeah, I thought that and it totally happened. And then there'll always be pieces where you're like, oh, this is really interesting to see. One of the things that was interesting to see in the in the last survey was not an unexpectedly, like everybody had used WordPress at some point, pretty much, right? Like most used tool, but also the most disliked tool in the whole ecosystem in terms of satisfaction rating. But then it was really interesting to see that there was a smaller subset that had been using headless WordPress and they were actually pretty happy. So that was just like one of those interesting tidbits that came out that was like, ah, interesting to see that that shift happening. This year you focus a lot on where we work from. Why is that important to the Jamstack? That's more in general insight to the whole modern web ecosystem, right? Like, and I think... When you ask why is it important to the Jamstack, I think a lot of the way we thought about this architecture is that it's also very inherently related to how people work. This idea of being able to decouple different services, have a self-standing web UI, that's not just a sort of programming model-centric thing. It's also an organization-centric thing, right? Like it makes it easier for a web team to execute at their own speed without a hard dependency on every 
deployment, depending on the backend team, it, it means that the web team gets to choose their own tooling instead of getting it dictated to them by someone having chosen, like we're using WordPress for the backend. Now, now you go write PHP because that's how it looks like, right? Like, so a lot of these things around the architectural pieces linked to the organizational piece. And I think it will be really interesting to see the ways we collaborate and work together in companies will also shift as companies embrace remote working more and more. The places the Gamstack community like is driven from and will get together and so on will also evolve as we properly get more and more global participation in the community. So very interested to see the survey also just reflect all these changes in like how do we work together and where where are people able to work from. Yeah, and I think it'll be really interesting to see what correlations can be made. You know, are people that work from home constantly, you know, more edge driven with the latest technologies? Or are they more chiller with like taking everything three years behind the bleeding edge? (laughs) And I think that's about it for today's episode. Would you agree, Anthony? Is there any more questions you'd like to ask? No, that was awesome. Thank you so much for being here, Matt. Why don't you let our listeners know where can they find you on Twitter? I'm on the Twitter handle Bealman, which is my hard to spell surname, B-I-I-L-M-A-N-N. So do follow me there or just search for Netlify CEO and you'll probably find a usable link somewhere. (laughs) Great. And thank you so much for coming on here today. I think that's all for now. Yeah, thank you. This was a lot of fun. That's good. That'll be a cut.